Disclosure. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, any and all information presented in this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making any decision. Hey everyone, Ben Keedy with the Wealth Crypto Podcast. I know it's been a little while since I've been in front of you, but I do have one more episode before the end of the year, and this is with a man who probably needs no introduction for the vast majority of you, but I'm super excited to say that I had Rick Edelman on last week, and we had a great conversation about, you know, all things crypto, wealth management, et cetera, et cetera. So without much further ado, we'll get into it. And as far as episodes go, this will be the last one before the end of the year, and then we'll see you all back in 2023. Thanks, and hope you enjoy. And we are live. Hello, Rick. Ben, good to be with you. Yeah, yeah, I really appreciate it. Thanks for uh, taking the time on my my little podcast today. <laughs> well, cool. Um, so everyone uh, who is listening, I have on someone who you probably are all very aware of, Rick Edelman. Um, obviously, Rick's been around a really long time, a uh, pioneer in the RA space way back when, and is now pioneering digital assets too for the industry. So we've got a lot to cover, but Maybe Rick, just kind of give us a brief intro of, you know, who you are, where you came from, touch on where you got into digital assets, and then we can go from there. Uh, terrific, Ben. Thanks. I think most folks know my background. Uh, I'm uh, My wife and I started what is now the largest RIA in the country with, I don't know, 260, 280 billion in assets serving 1.4 million households. Uh, I am probably the uh, most active financial educator uh, in the industry. Uh, my radio show and podcast have been on the air for 32 years. I'm a New York Times number one bestselling author of 12 books. My most recent is The Truth About Crypto, uh, which just won an award for Book of the Year by the Society of Business Writers. Awesome. Uh, into that. Uh, I've been uh, producing television shows for 30 years, including a series of specials for public television. Uh, and we've done thousands and thousands of seminars and webinars for consumers uh, in the industry over the decades. Uh, and uh, last year, I walked away from Edelman Financial, the, the RAA that uh, my wife and I created many moons ago, to focus on predominantly crypto education, to teach financial advisors about the practice management issues that really matter most to help advisors build their business, generate new clients, new AUM. Uh, crypto is a big part of that, but not the sole subject. We also talk a lot about longevity, retirement security, exponential technologies, and health and wellness. These are the topics advisors need to be focusing on uh, in order to really provide um, state-of-the-art services uh, for their clients. And so I'm kind of like an older statesman at this point. I'm no longer really working uh, with Edelman Financial. I'm still on the board and still their biggest individual shareholder, but I'm not really involved in the day-to-day. So I'm kind of like the elder statesman trying to, to help the industry overall um, improve the job they do for their clients and then along the way, helping advisors build their businesses. Okay. That's pretty thorough. Um, let's see. I think maybe just a good place to start is, at least as far as this podcast goes, is where did you first 
find out about crypto? What was your initial kind of exposure to it? And maybe what, what gets you excited? Like why, why do you, why are you investing all this time currently with crypto? My goal uh, has always been to help our clients anticipate the future. Uh, and so I've become what some regard as a futurist in this industry, trying to figure out what are the trends that are going to direct our lives uh, and what are the innovations that are going to impact uh, our personal finances and our careers. Uh, and so um, I uh, have spent a lot of time throughout my career with technologists and scientists and futurists, uh, economists, trying to figure out where are we, where are we going? You know, the Wayne Gretzky approach to personal finance, you know, yeah. skate where the puck is going. And that led uh, about 15 years ago to my meeting uh, Ray Kurzweil. Uh, I interviewed him for my public television show. Ray is uh, widely regarded as maybe the Albert Einstein of our age or the Thomas Edison of our age. He owns 600 patents. He's on the faculty at Harvard. He's now director of engineering at Google. Uh, he's one of the brightest guys on the planet. And he co-founded, along with Peter Diamandis, Singularity University. And uh, with Ray's encouragement, uh, I uh, went through their executive program uh, more than a decade ago. And there got broad-based exposure through that in-depth course on uh, artificial intelligence, robotics, 3D printing, big data, nanotech, biotech, bioinformatics, fintech, edtech, agtech, and recognizing that the innovations being brought by computer technology are really going to radically alter every aspect of life on our planet. And among those technologies is blockchain technology, otherwise known as digital assets. And I realized pretty quickly, this was back in 2012 when, you know, Bitcoin was still very, very new and most had never heard of it. And of course, my reaction was the same as everybody else's. Uh, digital money? What the yeah. heck is that? What do we need it for? Um, but I, unlike many others who tended to just dismiss it with a wave of their hand, oh, it's a fad, it's a fraud. I was intrigued um, because some really smart people were talking about this. And so I, I studied it, learned more and began investing by early 2014 and quickly realized two things, Ben. Uh, first, this technological innovation is perhaps the greatest wealth generator potential of any asset class uh, of the moment. And second, most advisors don't realize this. And so I realized that if I'm really trying to help consumers achieve financial security and attain their financial goals, uh, helping them understand why they should have an allocation to digital assets, how to do it, how much to do it, and helping advisors understand all of that as well. Uh, I decided I could be of greater value to more people through this conversation than any other single thing that I could be doing. And over the years, that led to my creation of DACFP, mm -hmm. the Digital Assets Council of Financial Professionals, which I launched six years ago. And the certificate program that we launched uh, two years ago called the Certificate in Blockchain and Digital Assets, which is an online self-study course for financial advisors and other professionals that is a deep dive on what is crypto. Uh, the first half of that course is you know, all about the tech. And the second half is all about practice management. How do you incorporate this into your business? 
Uh, and we've had now had thousands of advisors go through the course from eight countries, um, learning about this technology and being able to figure out how to use it in their practice and determining which client is it appropriate for, and if so, how. Uh, and so we're spending a lot of time now on crypto education and with uh, the current news and developments in that space, uh, the, the level of interest has never been higher. Yeah, I, I mean, despite all the black eyes this year, uh, at least everyone I talk to, uh, the interest definitely seems to be there for sure. Um, but obviously, unfortunate year for certain headlines. Um, no, I think that's great. So, I mean, I've been in wealth management, not nearly as long as you, basically 10 years since college, but have seen it evolve a lot. And the the crypto conversation definitely is polarizing for sure. Cause you still, I think you still get a lot of like, you know, never, never coiners type thing, but then you also have like the maximalist too. But I think there is a huge amount of people kind of in the middle, right? Who are kind of yeah? There's the uh, they're the ten percent on both extremes. Eighty percent are in the middle. They call themselves crypto curious because they're hearing so much hype, so much yeah. conversation. And you're right that it is a very polarizing subject. I've never really fully understood why. Uh, I mean, it's just another asset class. Uh, I don't understand why it generates the heated debate that it does, especially when we consider that. Uh, I mean, my advice that I wrote in my book, The Truth About Crypto, is that you should allocate 1% of assets. Uh, Yale did a study and they said 3.1%. The CFA Institute did a study and they said 2.5%. Everybody who studies this is in agreement, low single digits. Well, if you're only going to invest one or two or 3% of your money into crypto, why are we talking about it 50% of the time? Uh, And and why is it generating such a heated debate? I've never really understood this, especially from among people who will also simultaneously say to you that they believe in diversification. Yeah. Diversifying doesn't mean you only buy what you like. It means you buy every asset class because whether you like it or not, um, because who knows whether you're right. So, yeah, I find it fascinating that there's so much emotion behind it, and I really don't understand why. Yeah, people certainly don't talk about emerging markets the way they do Bitcoin. That's, that's <laughs> They really don't. And, and <laughs> I, guess, I guess the reason, if we were to speculate as to why it's such filled with emotion, I can think of three reasons. Number one, crypto was not invented by Wall Street. Uh, It was invented by the tech sector, by a bunch of anarchists who were trying to overthrow fiat currencies around the world. That was Satoshi's goal when uh, Satoshi wrote the white paper in 2009. Uh, So there was a bit of anarchy uh, behind it, uh, which has threatened establishment. So you look at people like Jamie Dimon, who hate Bitcoin, and Warren Buffett, who hate Bitcoin. Well, think about it. Bitcoin, if it reaches its um, theoretical uh, goals would eliminate the need for banks and government money. Well, that would be an existential threat against JP Morgan Morgan. (laughs) and Wells Fargo, who the biggest shareholder is Warren Buffett. So maybe, just maybe, they hate it because they're afraid of it. Um, And I also think that some people uh, hate Bitcoin simply because they missed out on it. And they're, instead of saying, gee, I'm sorry, I missed it, they're treating it like, you know, uh, the story of, you know, Aesop's fables with the fox and the grapes. You know, I'm going to yeah. hate that which I can't have. Um, so I, I don't know. I don't get it. I try not to waste a whole lot of my time worrying about what Jamie Dimon says. 
Yeah. I, I mean, there's a million stories about direct conflicts of interest for JP Morgan, like trading, you know, client accounts in Europe for Bitcoin type stuff. So um, anything. Yeah, well, and, and you can certainly say an awful lot about Wells Fargo and you wonder why Warren Buffett is such a big supporter of that company, considering their regulatory history. I mean, it. So my my personal interest in it really was from and I've learned a lot over the last several years just about what money actually is like the like the rails it runs on, who controls it, like, you know, how it's made type thing. And I think one thing I've been kind of surprised about is just how maybe I don't know if dismissive is the right word, but I don't know if many financial advisors really considered where money comes from, you know? No, like, no I think I think advisors are much more practical and tangible. Yeah. Um, you know, the philosophical basis for uh, for money, for our economic system, I think is interesting fodder, but I don't think it would necessarily affect the advice that advisors give or the services that they deliver. So, yeah, I think you're right. Most advisors haven't given it a lot of thought, but I'm not so sure they necessarily have to. Uh, I think instead, advisors should simply recognize that this technology, blockchain technology, is simply the newest form of software that allows commerce to conduct business. And we all know that technological innovation allows businesses to operate faster, cheaper, and safer with greater transparency and inclusion. And that's, in a nutshell, what Bitcoin is, what what digital assets broadly are, and the underlying technology of blockchain does. Uh, it's software. And if you believe in using bigger, better software, then you should embrace this rather than arguing about it. Yeah, that's that's a fair point. So I guess I'd be curious to know how you think about like, you know, the Bitcoin maximalist argument of, you know, usurping global fiat currencies versus more of like the software argument, like now the the, the Bitcoin maximalists are are wrong. They are unrealistic. They don't realize how the world works. They're idealists, and the sooner they get out of the way, the better. Um, their experiment failed. The goal of Satoshi was for Bitcoin to replace fiat currencies around the world uh, to be the new global digital currency. That experiment has failed, and it will never be resurrected because the one thing you must have. Uh, the number one feature of a currency is price stability. And Bitcoin is anything but that. Um, it is wildly volatile. So it fails as a currency and they will never resolve that issue. Uh, however, what it does do really well, while it fails as a digital currency, it succeeds really well as a digital asset. Assets are a store of value. Mm -hmm. uh, assets attract investors because of volatility, because of upside price potential. Bitcoin has proven itself to be the best performing asset class in history. Along the way, uh, it has suffered massive volatility, just like any other emerging investment has. You want to have some fun? Pull up the chart of Bitcoin from inception. You see, of course, massive volatility. And alongside it, show a chart of the first 12 years of Amazon. Yeah. Amazon stock is as volatile in its first 12 years as Bitcoin has been. It's just the nature of a new innovative technology. It's not something to be afraid of. It's something to acknowledge and therefore limit your exposure because of the associated risks. Um, so we have to recognize that Bitcoin is not a currency, 
but it is an asset. And like other assets, they belong in a diversified portfolio. Gotcha. So you approach it more as kind of like a super volatile digital gold store of value type thing rather than um, the end of fiat currencies, it sounds like. Yeah. And in addition to being a store of value, it also has utility, which gold does not have. I mean, you really yeah. can't use gold for any practical purpose. I mean, sure, it's used in dentistry to fill, you know, uh, uh, holes in teeth. And NASA uses it for electronic uh, protection in spacecraft. But there's not a lot of practical use of gold. Uh, we use it in electronics. That's about it. Uh, and you can't carry gold around with you. It's heavy yeah. and bulky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, gold never disappears. Every piece of gold that has ever been mined still exists. Mm -hmm. uh, and they keep adding to the supply every year because they keep mining for it. Uh, so it's not a very practical thing. It's pretty, it's wonderful in jewelry, but that doesn't create a commercial application. Bitcoin, on the other hand, does have a commercial utility because it can move at the speed of the internet. You can transfer right. Bitcoin from one person to another. Uh, and that is revolutionary that you can move it safely, securely, quickly, virtually for free in a manner that you can't currently do with the movement of money on a global basis. That has tremendous commercial application that makes Bitcoin far more than merely a store of value. And that is why it is growing in demand and usage because of those features. Yeah, I saw something from, I think, Fidelity this in the last several months about like where Bitcoin, like where digital assets are popular and they're, they're, I mean, to a certain degree popular in the US, but they're really popular, like in the global South and other areas where moving currencies around and having a store value has um, been challenging. Well, right? this is the thing that, that most Americans really don't appreciate uh, enough. I mean, we, the question that many have asked uh, on Wall Street is what do we need Bitcoin for? Um, you know, I can just go to the bank and deposit my money there. Uh, what's wrong with that? What's wrong with buying a U.S. Treasury? Why do yeah. I need Bitcoin? And that's a that's a fair question for Americans because yeah. we have a very stable government and a very stable financial system and economy, uh, and so we're spoiled. Um, you get your paycheck direct deposited into your bank account, and you give it no thought. You don't worry that the bank will go broke or that the yeah. government might seize the account. You know the money is there and that the dollar that's in the bank today will still be worth a dollar tomorrow. Oh, you know, 2% inflation on an ordinary basis. That's the Fed's target. This year's been different at 10%. <laughs> yeah. But, but the, the, the currency holds its value, relatively speaking, compared to the rest of the world. And you, you know that you can access your money pretty much anytime you want. You can transfer it very quickly and easily through a wire by writing a check by using a credit card or debit card or PayPal or Venmo or Zelle. Uh, and we don't use cash as a result. You know, we're doing yeah. digital transactions um, painlessly, seamlessly. Yeah. We're using automatic bill pay out of our bank account. It's simple and easy. What do I need Bitcoin for? That's a legitimate question. But what people don't generally realize here in the U.S. is that very few other people in the world get to make that those statements. If yeah. you live in... South America or Central America or, or uh, Sub-Saharan Africa or in um, uh, Southeastern Asia, you're dealing with governments that are highly unstable, economies that are extraordinarily volatile, currencies that are deficited by inflation at a thousand percent a year. Uh, I mean, Zimbabwe was printing 
five trillion dollar notes. What could go wrong? Because, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so for these consumers in Vietnam, uh, in Indonesia, in uh, Venezuela and El Salvador and Panama, they're turning to digital assets because these represent a far more stable way to store their money than their local currency can do from issued by their government. And many of these people, a billion of them, frankly, according to the United Nations, out of the 8 billion in the world, 1 billion people are unbanked. They don't earn enough money to have a bank account or they don't live anywhere near one. And if you don't have access to a bank, where do you store your paycheck? You have to go to a check cashing service which charges 20%. Then you've got to carry your cash in your pocket where you might be robbed. You might lose it. You can't, without a bank, establish credit. You can't borrow money. You can't uh, rent an apartment, buy a house, buy a car, start a business, all because you're excluded from the banking system. But with crypto, you don't need a bank. All you need is a phone. And 70% of the people who don't have a bank, don't have a bank account, do have a cell phone which means they now have access to the digital access to money in an unprecedented way, all thanks to blockchain. This creates inclusion on a global scale, taking the bottom billion of the planet and rising them up into the middle class in a way that has never been done before. So practically as an advisor, if I'm listening to this and it's like, okay, Rick's bringing up some good points, right? Where where do you kind of coach people to begin to have this conversation with clients and prospects like what what practically can people do if they want to make a reasonable call it one to five percent allocation well the first thing you've got to do as an advisor before you even consider investing is get educated You've got to understand what this new asset class is. Uh, and would you ever think back to when you were new in the business and the first time you ever heard of an annuity or a charitable remainder trust? The first thing you had to do was learn what the heck that was mm-hmm. before you could understand what client is it appropriate for, in what degree, and in what way, and how much of the portfolio. How do I explain it to my client? What are the ownership issues? What are the tax issues? What are the estate planning issues? What are the compliance issues? How do I begin? Well, that's where it all starts with education. And unfortunately, because crypto did not come from Wall Street, Wall Street isn't offering any education. That's why I created DACFP and our certificate course. It's why I wrote my new book, The Truth About Crypto, to provide this level of knowledge for advisors so that you can get the knowledge you need so that you can then begin to understand how to determine which of your clients should invest, how much should they invest, where should they invest, uh, and uh, being able to communicate with your clients in a manner that they can understand. Because your clients are hearing about crypto, they're not hearing about it from you. And that's a bad combination. Yeah. So one thing I've kind of been noodling through, I think you're right, obviously, about knowing obviously what you're talking about. But I think you could easily make an argument that like, how well do advisors maybe know what emerging markets is? Like, how how do you reasonably make an EM allocation when you have no global macro experience, really? You know, you're not on the ground in these places. You don't really know what is is really there, right? Like, to me, it kind of seems 
you know, you're kind of quarterbacking at a really high level, kind of getting asset class exposure, right? Is that well, I'll, give, I'll give you, I'll give you two answers to that, Ben. Uh, it's a valid observation. Um, first, emerging market stocks at the end of the day are stocks. And advisors understand the stock market. And we understand that there's large cap, mid cap, small cap, and emerging market. We understand there's growth in value, that there's US and foreign. And it's easy enough for an advisor to say to the client, I'm going to give you a stock portfolio that will consist of all the above. I don't have to know an awful lot about individual emerging markets to be able to give you an allocation to emerging markets, since I'm probably using mutual funds or ETFs. I'm using a package of them. I'm not picking the emerging market. I'm buying an ETF with a fund manager picking the emerging markets for me. The same way I'm picking large cap stocks. I'm buying a large cap ETF. I'm not picking individual stocks of the S&P 500 or the Wilshire 5000. So it's relatively easy for the advisor to do it. And inherently, the advisor knows what the tax rules are because it's just stocks or an ETF. So it doesn't take a huge amount. And by the way, if the advisor is new, the firm that the advisor is associated with has a lot of content and knowledge and training. There, the Series 65, the Series 63, the Series 7, the Series 6, all of those examinations involve training on stocks and taxation. But crypto is a totally new and different asset class. The taxes are different. The allocations are different. The exposures are different. And your firm is as clueless as you are. There's no institutional knowledge within your organization where anybody in your firm knows anything about crypto, not your uh, CIO, not your CCO, not your CMO, not your CHRO. They don't know anything about crypto either because it's all new and it was born outside of the Wall Street environment. So your firm isn't really of any help to you either. And that's why you need to get aggressive on your own, take the initiative to get the knowledge and education you need, because it isn't being handed to you the way that it is in the stock market. And you need to also get aggressive with getting your firm to engage, to help you help your client, because you're getting client questions and you don't know how to answer them. And your firm isn't facilitating your ability to answer them. And this isn't doing your client any good. It's not doing you any good. It's not doing your firm any good. And so we have to overcome this inertia. What what do you think that inertia is? So like I know for a lot of advisors affiliated with broker dealers, insurance companies, whatever, you know, crypto is just a straight no fly zone, right? Like you were just not allowed to really engage on it in most situations. So obviously a lot of people are moving to RIA. But even then, if you're affiliated with, you know, name any independent broker dealer and you're duly registered, like they're going to have opinions about those things, too. So, well, let's begin. I mean, yeah, it's a it's a real big uh, problem. And and here's what's going on. Uh, If you're uh, an FA or an RAA and you go to your firm or your custodian or your exchange and you say, I would like to recommend crypto to my client. Your firm's compliance officer is going to say no. And the reason for the compliance officer to say no is that they themselves don't know anything about crypto. And they're afraid to say yes. I don't know anything about it. How can I say yes if I don't know what it is I'm saying yes to? If something goes wrong, it's my my job over this. Yeah. My career's on the line. I have no upside incentive 
There's no benefit to me personally as a CCO to let you do crypto. Because if it goes well, well, great, it goes well. But if it goes badly, I get fired. I'm not going to get promoted over this. I'm not going to get a raise or a bonus. But if it goes badly, I could lose my job over this. I I could get regulatory scrutiny on me and my firm. I don't see the career risk worth it. So the CCO just inherently says no because they don't have the training themselves in this subject to understand how to say yes. And I've seen many CCOs blatantly, falsely say that you're not allowed to do crypto. There's no no regulatory path to allowing you to do it. And that's just blatantly wrong. That was true six or seven years ago, but it's not true today. Today, you can allocate to crypto in a totally compliant, safe way with the full blessing of FINRA and the SEC. There are ways to do it and ways not to do it. And most compliance officers don't know the difference. True of most uh, investment uh, committee uh, uh, CIOs. Yeah. They don't know either. They don't have any classic training on this. They went to economic school. They hold their CFA. They uh, have been managing money for decades. They don't have any training on this either. And if you apply their training and expertise and experience, crypto looks like a tulip bulb or a beanie baby. If all you do is look at the price volatility, it doesn't look investable. Uh, And they need to realize that they have to look at this through a different lens. They have to look at it, frankly, through a business basis, that clients are asking about this. Over 80% of clients expect their advisors to be knowledgeable about crypto. 60% say they'll be willing to leave and get a new advisor in order to get advice on this subject. Firms are causing themselves harm by remaining uh, oblivious to this subject and refusing to let their advisors engage. And so the real key is to recognize that you can't say yes to something you don't fundamentally understand. And because crypto grew up outside of Wall Street, there's no instinctive, inherent institutional knowledge base about it. And you need to recognize that your lack of knowledge is the impediment. It's not regulatory um, obstruction. It isn't um, unlawful. It isn't illegal. Uh, it isn't a fad. It isn't a fraud. Uh, it, it isn't something that has no intrinsic value. You simply need to understand what crypto is and get off the myths and the misconceptions of what crypto isn't so that you can do your job for your firm, for your career, for your advisors, and for your clients. And that's the mission that I've been on for the past six years, helping firms acknowledge this, realizing it's not as hard as you thought. It's not as scary as you thought. It's actually something that can be of value to the client, to the advisor, and to the firm. And once uh, organizations begin to realize this, they get an aha moment uh, and they realize it's not as scary as they thought and it's easy to, to engage. Yeah. So so let's just take like a specific example. In my day job, I talk to lots of different types of firms. Lots are RAs and have control of their own destiny. So say I'm some RIA and I really want to take the next step and I've gotten educated, what are the practical things we really need to consider to to institute a good crypto offering to our clients? What, what are the main things that come to mind from your seat? Well, the first mistake that advisors uh, make and that their firms uh, assume, part of which is why they're so resistant, is that there's, for some reason, a misconception 
that you have to adjust your practice to accommodate crypto. That is completely untrue. And it's also foolish to attempt, especially since we're talking about a one or two or 3% allocation. Many believe that they have to develop a brand new tech stack, that they have to reculturalize their clients, retrain their staff to accommodate crypto, that there are regulatory hoops they have to jump through. None of that is true. However you run money, there's a crypto sleeve available to you. In other words, you don't change your practice to accommodate crypto. You incorporate crypto to accommodate your practice. In other words, however you like to run money, there's a way you can add crypto. If you like to trade stocks, or you like to do futures and options, or you like to use ETFs, or you use TAMPs or SMAs, you use IRAs or 401ks, if you do private placements for accredited investors, however you like to manage money, there's a way for you to do crypto within that methodology that doesn't require a new level of training or a new tech stack or a new conversation with a client. It's incredibly simple and easy. This I couldn't have said six or seven years ago, but I can say it today. And most people are unaware of this. They think that crypto is a big deal. It isn't. It's, it's an, there are ETFs that invest in crypto. There are over-the-counter stocks uh, or uh, securities. There are, there are um, Fortune 500 stocks that allow you to get a crypto exposure in the portfolio. It is simple and easy without a significant lift. The only risk is market risk. Is this an asset that you want to have in your client portfolio? And that's a decision you make on a client-by-client basis, just like you do any other investment idea. Um, So it's remarkably simple and easy. That allows you to do your job of portfolio rebalancing, dollar cost averaging, tax loss harvesting. Um, That is no different than any other asset class, whether you're talking about emerging markets or robotics or AI or... um, self-driving cars. Um, it's no different than any other technology sector. It's incredibly simple and easy. And for some reason, people make it absurdly complicated. Yeah. Well, <laughs> it's uh, it suffers from headline risk in a way that a lot of other asset classes certainly don't. So um, maybe we could kind of pivot a little bit to that. I'm sure everyone would love to kind of get your take on this year in crypto. 2022 has been something else. really i hadn't noticed Um, yeah it's you know this has been a bad year for crypto it's down 77 percent over the over the past year uh we've seen uh a lot of crises we've seen uh celsius blow up terra luna blew up BlockFi went bankrupt uh ftx of course most recently which we're still dealing with a fallout from i don't mean to make light of any of this it's horrific and terrible the ftx debacle is is horrifying uh, and frankly, has set back the development of crypto by a good six to nine months. Um, so what do you make of all this? Well, let's put it into perspective. Uh, this is the seventh time in Bitcoin's history that it has fallen 70% or more in value. 
seven times in 14 years, it's done that <laughs> along the way to being the best performing asset ever. The best, do you realize that even though what's been going on in crypto this year, crypto for the past two years has still beaten the S&P 500? Yeah. It's the I mean, nature of volatility in an emerging, developing technology. So we need to recognize that the two-year, three-year, five-year, 10-year, and since inception record is the best of any asset class, that you have problems like this. I'll tell you there are only two good pieces of news coming out of FTX. First, it was a fraud. That wasn't obvious when the news first broke that FTX was collapsing. We were fearful that this represented um, the uh, systemic demonstration that crypto won't work. But then we learned after only a few days that Sam Bankman-Fried has apparently perpetrated a massive multi-billion dollar fraud, just like Bernie Madoff. Now, Bernie Madoff, as horrible as that was, didn't spell the end of the stock market. Um, it represented instead uh, nothing but a criminal behavior. Yeah. Uh, and it wasn't systemic. Um, so the good news is it's an isolated event. It, it, when I say isolated, I don't mean the sole event. We'll find other frauds. There have been other frauds. There will be more problems like these. More companies will go broke. We're not done with this saga yet. But it isn't systemic. Second, it's going to spur Washington to a new level of urgency in the development of law and regulation, which has sorely been lacking. We've been working for years trying to get those rules in place. This is going to get Washington to act faster than they otherwise would have. And that's good uh, because we need consumer protection, investor protection. We need the rules of the road so institutional investors know how to engage. And I think as a result of FTX, we'll see that in the next year to two years, uh, which will be years faster than otherwise would have happened. What do you think? Because everyone has been talking regulation, particularly with the SBF debacle. What are common sense reforms that the industry can make that, you know, make sense, but are also not? Well, it's all the same rules, uh, Ben, that we have for the stock market. Yeah. I mean, if you're a brokerage firm, you are not also allowed to be an exchange. If you're a custodian, you can't also be a counterparty. FTX was breaking all these rules by doing yeah. all of these things simultaneously. We don't let that happen in the stock market. We have barriers that if you're going to do this kind of business, you can't do that kind of business. We put up these barriers to eliminate the conflicts of interest, to prevent companies from engaging in self-dealing. We have auditors. We have boards. We have government examiners to validate the existence of the assets, to make sure that the assets are being securitized, that they are being custodied in a safe way so that this can't ever happen. I mean, there's no way Jamie Dimon by himself could walk off with the trillions of dollars of assets that are on deposit by investors at his brokerage firm. Yeah, but, that, that but Sam be... Bankman-Fried was able to do this all by himself with no oversight, no checks yeah. and balances. This is obscene. This is absurd. How is this allowed to happen? First of all, he was an offshore overseas entity yeah. outside the jurisdiction of government uh, law enforcement and regulatory authority. 
We would never allow that to happen in the stock market. So we don't necessarily need a lot of new rules. We need existing rules to be applied to crypto. And we do need some new rules because it is a new asset class. There are new aspects of this that didn't exist when the securities laws were written back in the 1930s. There are certain elements of tax law that are silent on crypto, like staking and mining uh, yep. and airdrops and forks. What are the yep. tax treatment of these things? You know, So yeah. we do need some new rules. But what we mostly need is common sense and adult supervision. Yeah. And Washington is clearly able to provide both. Well, why do you think they've moved slow? If you, if because you... it's a new asset class. Yeah. And frankly, slow is not bad. I mean, if they came in too early, too heavy-handed in regulation, they would have stifled the innovation. Sure. I mean, if Henry Ford had waited for speed limits <laughs> yeah. and stop signs, he never would have built the Model T. You got to get the innovation out there, get the Model T on the road, and sadly, unfortunately, wait for the car accidents. That will spur the that, regulators to create yeah, the rules of the road. That's the unfortunate side of thing is the human aspect. Maybe that's an interesting place to go. Because I remember looking at um, like Celsius Nexo and all these uh, lending platforms uh, at the beginning of this year. And I was like, wow, like this is insane. What does like 15 to 20% yield mean? And you'd go and you and you'd go looking, right? Like if as long as you've got a financial mind, you were like, okay, yield is risk. So what's the risk? What are they what are they up to? And I think one takeaway I had was a lot of people just didn't know. You know, people are crushed by low interest rates, trying to make some money, get ahead. And it, you know, ultimately got people into a place where they didn't fully understand why the yield was what it was. So oh, that's lousy due diligence and it's greed. You know, people who chase yield always get what they deserve. Um, well, so my, my question here is more about on the education side of things. So like, mm -hmm. what, what is your thought about, you know, just the overall state of financial education in the United States and then globally? Like to me, well, it's, like, very, it's very poor. Yeah. We know this. We are a financially illiterate society. You know, we go to here in the United States, we have the best education system in the world, and yet our adults are financially illiterate. Uh, the um, uh, I'll give you one question that was recently asked on a survey. Um, you uh, put $100 in a bank and it earns 2% in interest. After one year, do you have less than a dollar two, a dollar two, or more than a dollar two? Yeah. And 60% got that question wrong. Yeah. We are financially illiterate. We go through K through 12 without ever taking a class on money. Most college yep. students graduate with ever having a course on money. Mom and dad never talk to us about money and neither do our employers. Yeah. And therefore we're faced with financial decisions and we are totally unprepared and incapable of handling those decisions effectively. Choosing credit cards and debit cards, leasing a car, buying a house, buying insurance, writing a will. Uh, we have no skill set because we have no education. And this isn't a crypto thing. This is a broad personal finance thing. Yeah. So where, where do you think, uh, where where can crypto and what you're up to like be a value add to that challenge, right? Because well, like- the, the, Here's the cool thing. Crypto is the hot topic. 
everybody's talking about uh, some aspect of crypto, whether it's Bitcoin or Ethereum or Dogecoin or NFTs or the metaverse, DeFi and DAOs. It's a hot topic. It's a fun topic. It's intellectually interesting. Uh, and so it's easy to get someone's attention. Uh, and this is, I think, a wonderful opportunity to get people engaged in financial literacy. I've been in this movement for 30 years. I've been involved with the Jumpstart Coalition on Personal Finance Literacy, with the American Savings Education Council, uh, the Employee Benefit Research Institute, the National Endowment for Financial Literacy, the Boys and Girls Clubs. Um, I, I created the Funding Our Future Coalition, which is the largest organization with over 75 members, corporate, nonprofit, philanthropic, and uh, academic, all focused on financial literacy and public policy in Washington. And crypto represents a huge, wonderful opportunity for everybody to pay attention and to learn about money in a fun, interesting way in a subject that is brand new and really hip. Uh, so that's my big uh, opportunity for advisors. Here's the problem that advisors are facing and why crypto is such a wonderful solution. The problem advisors are facing is that they are now, today, mostly homogenous. This wasn't true when I first got started in the 1980s. Every advisor was doing different things in very different ways. But today, most advisors are highly professional, skilled, trained individuals. And we know the proper way to manage money. And we're all doing it pretty much the same way. We're diversifying with a long-term perspective. We're rebalancing. We're doing dollar cost averaging, tax loss harvesting. We're doing it on a fee basis, not commission. We're doing it as a fiduciary. Most of us are running money in that way, which means, why the hell should I hire you? You're the same as the other guy. Yeah. There's no difference between you and another advisor. 30 years ago, we were able to show a real difference, me versus others, because we were all doing different things. But today, we're all doing the same thing. We're all using ETFs. How do we differentiate? Along comes crypto. This is the first new asset class in 170 years. The last time we had a new asset class was the discovery of oil in the 1850s. This oh, wow. is the first time we have something new and different to talk about that very few other advisors have any training on. You can talk about something with your client that they're not hearing about from others. That is a market differentiator that will allow you to attract clients and assets that will set you apart in a big way. It's a wonderful business building opportunity that, oh, by the way, also offers the opportunity for your client to have outsized returns in their effort to achieve their financial goals. It's a win-win. This opportunity won't last forever because in 10 years, crypto will be as common in portfolios as emerging markets are. Yeah. Well, you said something earlier about what you're doing with uh, the new foundation about consulting on things like healthcare, lifestyle, um, exercise, right. whatever. And it, it, it clicked in my brain. I was like, you know, that's that to me seems like a really interesting way just to differentiate yourself as an advisor just in your immediate day to day, because like you said, everyone offers a diversified, low cost, you know, dollar cost average rebalance portfolio these days, like and technology can do that. If like if you're me and my generation, like it's easy to go to Betterment and get that done right. professionally for like 20 bips. Like, yeah, what, what do I need you for? Yeah. yeah. So what is what is the value of the advisor going forward? 
And that's exactly why crypto, for everything we're spending our time on it here, is only one of the subjects I talk about on my own podcast at The Truth About Your Future, uh, where I've been doing my show for 32 years. I talk about longevity and retirement security and exponential technologies because this is the key of a differentiation in your portfolio and the advice you give your client, the conversation you have with clients. And it really begins with longevity. We are living longer than humans have ever lived in history. Your clients are not going to be dead in their 80s. Chances are they're going to live to age 100 and beyond. And most advisors have not factored that into their financial planning modules, which means if you're running a financial plan projection for your client and you assume they'll live to age 90 or 95, that plan may well be working. Rerun the numbers to age 105. Yeah. And that plan probably blows up. Your client is broke before they die. Social security was never intended to pay this amount of money for this number of people for this many years. Pensions were never designed to do it. The entire premise of retirement planning in this country is fatally flawed because of longevity. That has never happened before. And related to that is Alzheimer's. Because one in six, one in two, one in 10 people at age 60 get Alzheimer's. It's one in two, one in three at age 80 and one in two at age 90. It's the most expensive disease to treat because most Alzheimer's patients are ambulatory. They can walk around the house. They can turn on a stove. They can drive a car. They can pick up a firearm. They're a danger to themselves and their uh, community. They require 24-7 care. They live on average 12 years from onset of symptom to death, making it extremely expensive to treat, making it a multi-generational challenge economically for the family of caregivers supporting the aging parent. There is currently no treatment, no cure, no vaccine. There isn't even a diagnostic tool for Alzheimer's. And yet half of us by age 90 are going to have this disease which means either you're going to get Alzheimer's or you're going to be caring for your spouse who has it. This is going to bankrupt countries and your financial plan for your client probably hasn't even considered it. This is the kind of thing we need to be talking about with our clients, the future they're going to have because exponential technologies are causing us to live longer than ever, creating these issues that we've never even contemplated. And we have to factor them into our financial plans and develop strategies that will allow our client to have enough money to last as long as we do. And it's not going to be by buying muni bonds. (laughs) Good tax benefits on those munis, though, particularly if you're in my seat in California. That is that is one thing that I personally wouldn't have expected out of this conversation is the correlation between longevity, Alzheimer's and your financial plan. That's a super unique planning consideration. Are, do you have others kind of similar to that? That other My last book um, before I wrote my new one, The Truth About Crypto, my prior book was The Truth About Your Future, which is all about exponential technologies and the future and all of these innovations. Uh, and it's to really show you how life is changing. I'll give you one statistic. 15 years from now, half of all the occupations in America won't exist. They'll be replaced by robotics and AI, which means your client is probably working in a career where they'll be out of work in 15 years. If they're not going to be well into retirement by then, they're in trouble. Uh, And that means their financial plan is in trouble. It also creates incredible investment opportunities of these new innovative technologies. So there is nothing that this tech doesn't touch 
uh, on life on our planet. It's affecting career. It's affecting home ownership. It's affecting marriage. It's affecting estate planning. Uh, it's affecting every aspect of society and politics. Uh, and most people are not talking about it. And this gives you, the advisor, the chance to talk about something new and different with your client to demonstrate your value add. And that is something Betterment can't do. Yeah. it. I mean, it's giving me a hell of a lot to think about right now. It's kind of terrifying in a sense. Um, let's see, we got about 10 minutes left. Where where would you like to kind of tie this off, Rick? Like we've covered a lot of ground here. Um, do you have any sort of parting thoughts or things you want to convey? I would simply say, Ben, that advisors can't build their business in the future the way that they built it in the past. What got you here won't get you there because the world is changing very rapidly. We have some very real issues from climate change to Russia and China and Iran and North Korea. Uh, we have longevity and uh, demography issues. We have political issues. Uh, and we have investment management and financial planning challenges. Advisors need to recognize that what has worked over the last 30 years, which is probably what your firm is teaching you, isn't going to work over the next 30 years. And you need to figure out how are you going to give your clients advice that will serve them in the future they're going to be headed in, as opposed to relying on the successful strategies of the past. You need to wake up. You need to pay attention. You need to be forward thinking. You need to be spending your time in this area. I would suggest you start with my book, The Truth About Your Future, and from there, go to my new book, The Truth About Crypto, uh, to get a sense of what's going on in the world and what's coming next so that you can design advice for your client that will truly be in their best interest. And you'll discover along the way opportunities for you to be different from everybody else. And that's how you'll attract clients and assets. One last question. Are you an optimist for the future? With I am. I, I am very optimistic. Um, I do believe that technology is going to solve our problems. Uh, we have uh, energy issues. We have water issues. We have inclusion issues uh, and diversity issues. We have political issues. But I do believe that technology offers the opportunity to solve these problems. But I don't want to be Pollyanna about it. Technology is also very scary. Uh, and there's a lot of uh, negative in my book, The Truth About Your Future. I have a chapter called The Dark Side, which talks about the negative uh, po potential of technology. Uh, and we have to be very diligent, uh, diligent, we have to be very careful. We have to be very politically active uh, to protect ourselves uh, against all of this. But I do have faith in, in, uh, in human beings uh, and in judgment. Uh, and the other reason that I'm optimistic is that we don't have a choice because if the bad wins, nothing is going to matter. Um, so you might as well invest with an eye toward optimism because if the world does go in the other direction, frankly, it won't matter what you did. We'll all be gone. Well, there you go. <laughs> there you go. I mean, I, I really appreciate having you on today, Rick. Uh, it was illuminating for sure. And you know, if you ever want to come back, I'd be more than happy to have you. This has been uh, a great experience for me. So hopefully it was for you too. I appreciate the time, Ben. It's always a pleasure. And uh, thanks for the opportunity. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, everyone. Till next time. Talk to you. Oh, wait, I want to pause the recording here. We'll just do some editing.